Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I want to welcome everyone to episode number 24 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting in August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, when you position it that way as you do each and every episode uh five straight years august 30th 1971 it just it just really hits you every time like oh my god you know how old am i and how many people who actually were at these shows are still with us i think we have every one of them listening to the podcast i do have to uh let you know that you always started off saying the early years of the wwf the wwf and the wwe and i guess now you have to include tko holdings which is now the name of the freaking company they're going to still keep the wwe they're not going to change it but yeah. now the umbrella is bigger but the umbrella the umbrella company endeavor which uh did the did the merger between ufc and the WWE have now folded it all into a another public company called TKO Holdings. So Dana White continues to run UFC. Vince McMahon continues to run the WWE. But it is a brand new company, massive amount of layoffs in the corporate offices of the WWE. They let go well over 50 people on the executive side. More layoffs to come, uh, most likely. And then we'll see what they do with talent. And they're kind of doing what all companies do when they merge with other big companies as they start getting rid of loyal employees that have been there for years. So there's a lot of uh, anxiety right now in those corporate offices. And even though they're saying that for now, the terminations are done, but uh, a lot of people are kind of shaking in their boots over there. So we'll see what happens. It'll be an interesting story to see how it develops. And especially on the talent side, will they be getting rid of a lot of talent? Will they be paring down talent? And then is there any cross-platform promotion opportunities between the UFC and WWE? One of the new leaders of TKA Holdings says there is a perfect synergy. Dana White from UFC has already said that's ridiculous. There is no synergy between the audiences of WWE and 
UFC. So here we go. You know, we'll see how it evolves and uh, take it from there. But now it's really WWF, WWF, WWE, and now TKO Holdings. Crazy. Now, what I'm looking towards is like you're talking about a lot of people being let go. What does that mean for AEW? What does that mean for NWA? What does that mean for OVW, who we were just talking about off the air? Yeah. That uh, reality show, uh, The Wrestlers, um, it's just phenomenal. Uh, What does it mean to the other promotions? I don't know. It could be impactful if uh, talent starts to get cut, and then there will be a bunch of free agents out there looking for work. So it could actually benefit AEW if they cherry pick some talent that's being let go. As well as the NWA, Impact Wrestling, uh, you know, all of it. So we'll see. It'll be a developing story we'll watch closely. But one thing that is for certain that Vince McMahon has put himself in a position as executive chairman of uh, WWE as part of TKO Holdings. And uh, it's an appointment that was for life. So (laughs) he's not going anywhere. And he looks kind of like this silent screen star from the early 1900s with that little mustache that he's got now and uh it's just uh it's just part of an evolution that really started back to the shows that we focus on when his dad vincent mcmahon senior was running the show so it's gonna be real interesting to see what happens in the future with this stuff you know what's so great about this we can't predict anything There's nothing – we can't predict how long Vince is going to be there. We can't predict if he's going to be there 100 years, 200 years. He can be there only a week. Who knows what's going to happen? And the cutbacks that are happening right now, we have no idea where they're going to go, who's going to be let go, who's going to be kept. I I, I like what you were trying to say. You were saying that the loyalists get done first, the ones that have been there for 20 years are the first ones to go because they're they're making decent money. But they're also loyalists, and they help the product, which it doesn't seem like – I don't know. It depends on who's running it. And, and what's involved, I, I'm excited about this. This should be very exciting. Yeah, they haven't really uh, made their cuts in uh, in the creative uh, part of it. Uh, like, you know, the people that are running the talent, the people behind the scenes. But they are making a lot of cuts in a lot of different departments, on the marketing side especially. It's going to be interesting. You know, Dana White said there's no crossover. You're telling me that you're not going to see any WWE superstars at the next UFC event or vice versa. I think they're both going to show up at both places. It helps the mm-hmm. product. Yeah, and if Brock Lesnar wants to jump back into UFC for a couple of matches, that's a that's a spinoff of WWE. And Ronda Rousey, who is now kind of departed the WWE, and maybe there's a couple of uh, UFC matches left in her. Who knows? But yeah, as you said, it'll be interesting to watch as, as it develops. Anything that uh, takes your uh, mind off of the product that they're currently producing, the presentations of the WWE right now are just, it's very, very stale. I mean, it's very stale, even though they brought The Rock back recently for a SmackDown and John Cena on the same show as The Rock. I mean, the the reality is, other than Roman Reigns, who was a crossover uh, star, if he ever wanted to get into film and TV, I don't think you'll ever see someone else who has that crossover ability because the company's not going to promote and push anyone that could be bigger than the company. That just won't happen anymore. Interesting. I have to try to watch it a few times. I, I tried to watch this, and and I was talking it's with. It's very difficult. It's very difficult, and I was talking with a friend the other day. Um, what's disappointing to me, even just being on the outskirts, is seeing people that aren't wrestlers, that have nothing to do with wrestling, come in and go to main events, come in and be superstars, and you know I know it's 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 like a, it's it's like oh look look we got got this great thing coming in here the Logan Pauls you, you know or is that right is that his name. Yeah, yeah. The Logan Pauls coming in. 
I'm not saying these matches aren't great. What I'm saying is you're going to put bring this guy in who's never done it before and put him against somebody who's been trying for 20 years to get to this pinnacle. And it's just like it, it, it seems to me like anybody can do it now. They're just making it anybody who's got fame can come in and do it. And it's wiping away any any sense of, you know, this is a sport. If anybody can do it and it just depends on who they push, then why watch it? Yeah, it's just kind of very dull and boring right now. And that's why even when we talk about these shows that uh, I attended at the Garden from 71 to 76 or 7, whatever it was, consecutively, even though some of the cards may be stale in a way, like even the show today that we'll be covering from October 15th, 73, it was kind of a stale show. But you knew that there was going to be TV the next week and who's going to come in to face the champion, who's going to be the next guy pushed. And it was almost like the only game in town because there wasn't national cable at the time. It was all regional. And so you were glued to that television set each week and you stayed with it because even though some shows, big shows, were not maybe the very best in the world. It's all you had and you looked forward to it and they were able to keep the audience engaged by bringing in people to face the champion and do angles and turns. And uh, so anyway, it was a different era, but today it's just too many performers. There's just too much. They change direction uh, at the drop of a dime. You look at AEW with just so much talent for the shows that they produce and the controversy about the backstage uh, feuds and the CM Punk drama. I much rather would watch and do watch old stuff. I can't really watch the new stuff. Me too. And it's getting worse and worse. I gave AEW a shot. I watched them a lot when they started up and even up until this year. But I just can't watch three shows that they do each week because it's all the same thing other than the Samoa Joe and some of the other performers they have. Uh, and then WWE is just kind of like, oh, you know, get me to something. Something that's going to keep my interest for a few minutes. And the only thing I watched off of SmackDown last week was The Rock when he came in in the opening segment, which was a big surprise. And it was kind of cool to see him and uh, John Cena. And I was like, all right, that's it. Fast forward the rest of it. Delete. Gone. Nothing else. No. No. But but the, the glimmer of hope we see, um, we were just talking off the air about that new Netflix reality TV show about OVW. Yeah, that is the best one I've ever seen. It's so realistic, and it really is a, a really good indicator of how the business really is on that level, on that independent level. And the drama that exists between Al Snow, who runs it, and couple of money partners he had to bring in to sustain it and their butting heads and the talent, you know, their struggles to get pushed and to work for nothing and doing, you know, county fairs and little parking lots at used car dealers and, and then have the drama of a couple of the characters, a mother and a daughter who uh, have a legitimate um, disdain for each other. And they put them together in an angle where they do a, a hardcore death match and it was horrific to watch because of the brutality that was involved in it. So uh, that was pretty hard to watch. It really was. But you like the series. The series is a I good love series. the series because it's captivating. Uh, there's seven episodes in this season. Uh, I've gone through five already. All seven are up there, and I just can't get enough. I'm like, tonight I can't wait to, uh, you know, after I have to watch the Blue Jays against the Yankees, I can't wait to end my night with watching episode number six. And perhaps I may finish it off tonight, you know, and... <laughs> 
so anyway, it, it really is interesting because it's a realistic look at it. It just shows everybody out there how difficult this industry is for people trying to break in and get their spot and get pushed and maintain somewhat of loyalty towards a promotion that at least gave you a shot like OVW. But uh, you could just see the nature of the wrestling business is the backstabbing. And it's prominent with some of the performers on this show. And Al Snow is just so great at his role because he's the guy that runs it. He's the booker and he's very stoic and he doesn't get upset. And he just is this professional who's been in this industry for many, many years and gone through it all. And his leadership, even though he doesn't have a ton of money to run this thing and they're doing it on a shoestring and there's always that risk of maybe next week is our last show because we don't have the money to continue it. It's dramatic and it's cliffhanger. And I recommend it to any wrestling fan, even old school fans who listen to this show, to watch it because it's the most realistic one I've ever seen. Other than Beyond the Mat, Beyond the Mat also showed that dark side and, and what was going on with big names. But this is a series that is a week to week uh, roller coaster ride of emotions. Well, let me just jump in here because I, I used to work in reality television and there's a difference between yeah. sh shooting a documentary and shooting a reality show. When we started talking about this, I was like, wow, I was impressed because a lot of times what happens is when you have something, we have, okay, we have this wrestling product. Well, there's a lot of producers that say, here's how we want to do it. This is what we want to do. I like this person. I want to show their story. I want to show this person. It seems to me that this show it is run like a documentary where it's yeah. not run like a reality show. Run like a documentary. You have a splinter crew. Maybe you have a camera guy, an audio guy that just follow people around. You follow Al, and then you wind up wherever the heat is. And that's hard to do because when you have a crew come in, you have the crew for like a week to do an episode. Usually a reality show takes about a week to do. And unless you get something by the end of the week, you don't have an episode. But it seems like they're just shooting a lot of stuff, and they're developing episodes by following the story. And it's amazing that they can do something like that. With a documentary, you can do that because you can shoot a documentary for three years and put it together. When you're doing a reality show, um, the ones that I have worked on in the past, it, it says, okay, how many episodes have we got? We've got 12 episodes. So every week that you're shooting, you have to put together an episode. And you ha there's got to be an arc. And this looks like you're, you're building the arc, the story arc, as you're going along, which is reality. And that's really amazing. Yeah, it is. It's a special one for sure. And I do hope that they green light a season two because this uh, season one has been pretty phenomenal. Well, I know we've been taking up a lot of time. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about today. Let, let me jump in real quick about uh, you retaining the Blue Jays versus the Yankees. Uh, you, How are your other podcasts going? Going well. Um on the baseball side of it, the Gibby show is just, we're right in the middle, like uh, the day that we tape this. And even though this is not going to air until October, if you look at it, because we're covering an October 15th show, the season is winding down. And uh, on the Gibby show, we're just kind of, all right, we're in the last 12 games of the season. The Jays are in the hunt there. They have a wild card spot right now, but only by a game. And you have three teams battling for the third wild card spot. So anything can happen. And it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how it unfolds holds uh, the rest of the season and hopefully deep into the postseason with the Blue Jays if they can make it there. They typically can beat up on a lot of the bad teams, but the better teams, the 500 and above teams, especially in their own division, the Jays have had a very difficult time winning. So it's, it's dramatic. It really is. You know, our guests have been great. 
Gibby always comes through with some amazing guests, and each and every week we get a chance to speak to either one of their announcers or one of their players or uh, somebody from the past. Uh, so it's really a good a good mix. On Pro Wrestling Spotlight, uh, the weekly show that I do, we're uh, taping uh, this week shows that actually took place right after the convention of 1993, which you were part of, with yes. the Sheik and all of that. When I look back at all the archives, there were about four weeks of shows that are not there. And and that was right around the time of the convention. So uh, right now we're going to cover uh, the last two shows I do before I quit uh, for the first time, uh, which is November of 93. I just had had enough of the wrestling business. I lost my shirt at the convention in 93 and I was sick and tired of the business and I decided to leave radio. And then I don't return really until August of 94 when I go back to WGBB for the final 12 shows or show, and then I leave it all in the beginning of 95. So uh, all that will be covered over the next few months. And we have uh, some guests that will be coming up uh, on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. Uh, our friend Tim Hornbaker, who wrote that great book on Buddy Rogers, just wrote a brand new one about Ric Flair. So we're going to bring him on to talk about that book. And uh, it's a phenomenal book. And he's such a great writer. So uh, we'll be doing that and covering it all. And then we have to decide once we complete the run of the shows, do we start it up again and go back to the beginning of April of 1989 and put a new fresh coat of paint on that stuff? Because when I started the podcast with Brian Lass, when it was called Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now from Arcadian Vanguard, the guy who does the shows with Jim Cornette, and we did two years of shows with Brian and those covered those early years of 89, 90, the beginning of 91. But then, you know, Brian and I have the split and then I get Bob Smith involved uh, for several months. And then I, you know, get Marsh uh, who kind of, Marsh and I kind of revamped the show and really happy with where it's going now. So it's like, all right, do we start it up again? And if we do, is it a Patreon only show? Or is it something that goes to the general public? So those are decisions that have to be made. Lots going on. A lot going on because this show has a very niche audience. It's, uh, you know, you're not talking about top of the charts listeners here. You're talking about people who maybe have lived those years and watched and were at some of these shows at the Garden or people that are really curious about it. But it's a uh, it's an eroding fan base because people get older and they pass away. <laughs> <laughs> literally yeah so i mean that's uh that's something that's really interesting and, and and Pro Wrestling Spotlight, though, but it's the same thing. It's a niche audience from the history of the 90s and uh, how how relevant is that history? I think we offer uh, the most unique podcasts out there when you could go back 50 years or you could go back 30 years and, and have audio to kind of back it up on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight and some, some films and stuff that we could provide here. So I know I'm reaching a limited audience with it. Also, I, I let me just jump in here. Um, since we started the podcast, and, and we weren't even the first ones to start, there are so many wrestling podcasts out there now. It is the most flooded market I've ever seen, and a lot of people are just talking about what's happening today. And there's so many things happening because you just don't have the WWE, you have AEW, you have OVW, you have all these other – they can talk about everything. So it's more like a gossip thing going on of who's going where and what's going on, and then everyone wants to review the shows. 
this is history what we're doing and once this yeah. is done you're not going to have this anymore because the shows today aren't, aren't promoting it like that they're not looking like when we're talking about the shows in 1973 or 71 we're talking about shows that like here are the guys and this is how it started this is how the company that has just became partners with the UFC started so ours are more historical and it you know when you, when you go and you only have so many hours in a day it's like being a kid in a candy store for wrestling fans you have all these podcasts out there you have all these shows to watch what when do you have time to do it all so we, what we've been picking up on and I've noticed are fans that like after a while they'll find something and they'll, they'll get onto it or, or they'll come back to it where the other ones you got to watch them every week you got to listen every week because what they say now won't be relevant in three months from now because it'll be old news where ours mm -hmm. is you know ours is a time capsule yeah it is it's it's uh, historically based and uh with the pro wrestling spotlight I mean it really is the only podcast that in real time, you can go back and hear what happened 30 years ago with the people that made the news stories for the most part. So that's the unique quality about that. And for this, to even be able to go back and talk about shows that you went to each and every month and talk about what was going on in that era is really unique and different. So it is different. The 250 or 300 other wrestling podcasts that are out there right now, the vast majority of them are covering today's product and their opinions and their rumors and their mostly false rumors or speculation, uh, with the exception of maybe what Conrad is doing because he's got Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, uh, Bruce Pritchard, when they go back and they talk about things, but they don't have that. They don't have that reference of these audios of sh stuff that was happening in real time back then, thirty years ago. What I like when I when I listen to like the Donnie Libels come on the show and they're talking yeah. about things that are coming up, which are now things that are thirty years old. It's pretty interesting to see how things, how the movers and shakers were going, how what you were thinking about the Ultimate Warrior at the time, or you know Psycho Sid or whoever was was wrestling at the time. It, it's, yeah. it's interesting to hear how they were marketed at that time and now we look back and think oh, oh this was this is the problem that was going on oh i didn't know this this is how it was working that's why there was a problem yeah and the, like if for example you mentioned psycho sid right or yeah. sid justice or sid what, what, what whatever. It was, he was it was sid, sid vicious yes yeah, this is to justice to psycho yeah, yeah. so yeah. this week on pro wrestling spotlight from november it's uh the incident that he uh, the scissor incident with him and arn in a hotel that got into a fight, him and Arn Anderson, Sid stabbed him with with scissors like 14 or 15 times and Arn stabbed him. So we're going to be covering that, you know, and, and that's kind of a story that's dead and buried, but it happened. So we'll be uh, covering that. And ironically, the last show, the show that I quit uh, for the year is the week that McMahon was actually indicted by the feds. Oh. So uh, so we have that and we have audio of that, of uh, comments made by the prosecutor after the indictment. So, uh, yeah, so that's what we have that others don't is that audio, that real time coverage of what happened with the specifics of what was happening that particular week. And if you want to find any great archives, we have them for you. Patreon.com slash John and Rizzi. Go back and relive it as many times as you want because it's right there. Yes, it is. Uh, I just uh, uploaded, I think, six new pieces of content this past Sunday, uh, and one of those was kind of really interesting. It was uh, it was uh, surrounding the 1993 convention, and uh, uh, I think it was Friday, October 24th of 93. Fred the Elephant Boy, uh, who was one of the Howard Stern whack packers, uh, got us a booking on the Howard Stern show to promote the convention. It was uh, myself. I didn't get on the air, you know. 
what the performers did. It was Medusa and Malaya Osaka, uh, you know, the two uh, women wrestlers that Fred the Elephant Boy took into the studios of Howard Stern. And even though I was there, I didn't say anything, but it was it was really good because I have the tape of that appearance. And so I put that up for patrons this past Sunday. And it was it was Howard Stern from the 90s. It was all about, hey, sexy, can I touch you? I mean, it was all of that stuff. And Medusa handled it really well. <laughs> That's an example of what the patrons will get. We'll play a couple of little clips from that on the on the podcast. But the entire half hour appearance is available for patrons. And uh, I got a whole new batch of vintage WWWF audio from 1975-76 that uh, I'm putting up those vintage audio clips from almost 50 years ago on Patreon right now. So you can get it all there. Five bucks a month gets you in the door. $10 a month gets you all the other vintage audio and video. And then there are the films and there's appearances you can make on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, depending on what your level is. But just go to patreon.com slash John Resi, check it out uh, because there's uh, 220 something pro wrestling spotlight radio shows on there now, and uh, there's more content every week, and there's just a ton of stuff. So I, I would recommend you just check it out if you're really a fan of history. Check it out. And we have photo sets and we have those movies that I shot at the garden during this time period that we're covering. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Join the family. Join the fun. Join the history. Get the history. Patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Uh, we lost another wrestling superstar, maybe one of the greatest of all time to lace up the boots. Terrence Funk, a.k.a. Terry Funk, a.k.a. The Funker, passed away August 23rd. 2023 in Arizona, where he was placed in a living facility back in 2021. Great wrestling family, his dad, Dory Sr., his brother, Dory Jr. Um, where do we start talking about the Funkster? I talk about Terry as an individual first. Terry and I were really close. I got to uh, work with Terry on a number of different shows uh, from my conventions to AAA, ECW, and IWAS, my wrestling promotion. We did a show in uh, 1995 in Chicago where Terry uh, provoked a riot when he turned on Mexican legend Pero Guayo and hung him with a noose, uh, and we almost didn't get out of there alive. But Terry was one of the frequent guests on Pro Wrestling Spotlight. I got to know him really, really well, and uh, he was the best. He was amazing. And I know we have some audio that we're going to play also of the very first time I met Terry, a promo that he did at Great American Bash in 89 uh, before he took on Ric Flair uh, after he uh, came back and sucker punched or Sundayed Rick, as he liked to call it, the Sunday punch. And uh, uh, so, I mean, I have nothing but great things to say about Terry Funk. And I spoke to him, I think it was uh, less than two years ago, because I wanted to see if I can get him on the show. And he was not really that cognizant. He didn't really remember who I was initially. And then he did. And then he was like, did I, you call me? Did I call you? I mean, so I knew at that time there was just no way. And it was sad uh, because he meant so much to me in my wrestling career. Um. I don't know what else to say. The man, you know, did remarkable things. He was a miracle with all the all the stuff he did at the age that he did, from the death matches in Japan to the ECW run. And everything that Terry Funk did was authentic, believable. His heart, his soul, his body was in the business. He loved the business. And um, this loss hit me harder than most. Uh, just because of the man and 
the kindness he showed to me when we worked together and the respect that we had for each other. But my respect for Terry is unsurpassed virtually with almost anyone else I've met in the wrestling business. Maybe I could put it and compare it to a Bruno Sammartino on how much Bruno meant to me and a Fred Blassie, uh, how much Blassie meant to me. But this one was tough and you knew it was coming, uh, but sad nonetheless. I mean, he had an incredible career, uh, not just in the ring, but acting as well and all the things that he did. Uh, and and he, he provided joy and he provided entertainment and he provided that suspension of disbelief to millions of wrestling fans over the years. And uh, we hope he's resting in peace and we hope he's up in heaven with his daddy and all the other legends that have uh, preceded him. The the clip we're going to play, is this from the first time you ever met him? Yes. It was in Philadelphia. It was at a Great American Bash tour. It was before the actual match that he and Flair had. I was backstage, and I was interviewing a bunch of the guys, as I normally do, and I asked to interview Terry, and he and Gary Hart uh, were there. All I did was turn on the microphone, and I had never met Terry before. Uh, I just turned on the microphone and uh, asked him one question, which was uh, what motivated him to attack Flair. And then without missing a beat, he stood face-to-face, nose-to-nose with me, and did a promo, which actually scared me because he was just getting so riled up about it. And I had not met the guy before, so I didn't know what was going to happen. I know it's, you know, it is what it is. It's, you know, work, but... He put so much into it, and uh, I tried to throw a question in while he was on his tirade and was able to get one in. And uh, and then even when I was trying to wrap the interview up, he wouldn't stop. He goes, I got a lot more to say about him. And what are you going to do about it, John? What are you going to do about it? And then finally, when the interview was over and I shut the tape recorder off and he gave me a big smile, <laughs> he said, how was that? Was that good? I was like, it was great. It was great. And then uh, shortly thereafter, he started coming on the pro wrestling spotlight, initially called me John Azuru, uh, and always kind of made fun of my last name and Big John. And he was just great. But that first meeting with him that we're going to play, that literally had me kind of shaking in my boots because he was nose to nose with me. And he had that branding iron and he was in his his gear and it was kind of like and Gary Hart just stood there just looking and arms crossed smiling. Gary didn't say a word. But it was it was cool. It was one of the best uh, it was one of the best interview experience uh, I've ever had. Looking back at it, because of how much uh, how real it was, and how great it was. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Well, well, let's listen to that interview right now. Terry, of course, a lot of controversy in the NWA since the attack on Ric Flair that took place not too long ago after Ric uh, regained the World Championship. What motivated you to attack Flair? What motivated me was I looked in the man's eyes and I realized that he was getting ready to sucker punch me. I told the fans across the United States that before and I just got the first punch in on him. I sundered him and that's exactly what he needed at that time. And right now I am looking forward to July the 23rd in Baltimore when I have a chance at the World's Heavyweight Championship. And believe me, this is the most important thing that there is to me is the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. If you want to look at a championship with a past, with a heritage, with some meaning behind it, with a hundred years behind it, well, you look at the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. And you look at the contenders, the top ten contenders, which I happen to be one, John, because well, I am one of the top contenders, and I am going to meet Ric Flair for the World's Heavyweight Championship on the 23rd of July in Baltimore. And believe me, I want to make my career complete. I mentioned it to somebody before that my father passed away in my arms following a professional wrestling match. And I went to his funeral and there were thousands of people there. But I went to that gravesite, this Memorial Day service, and there was only me and the West Texas Winds there. And I looked down at that gravestone and I saw that name, F-U-N-K Funk. And it was right then and there that I said to myself, I am going to make that name synonymous with wrestling forever. And that's exactly what I intend on doing, John, and that's exactly what's going to happen on pay-per-view. So if you people want to see something that's, that, that is different, some title change hands that's going to change hands that has meaning in the world of professional wrestling, well, you watch that World's Heavyweight Championship change hands. And you want to talk about Ric Flair? You want to talk about who he is, what he's done? Yes, he has been a great champion, yes, but we can't live in the past. Let's go on to the future. An old banana nose, old horse teeth, the old jackass himself doesn't stand a chance against me in the ring, nor does anybody else. And I'm not pulling your leg or giving you a bunch of crap. You are talking to the best athlete, best wrestler in the world today. Maybe I'm not the strongest. Maybe I don't have the biggest arms. Maybe I don't have the biggest chest. But I do have the biggest heart. And I do know where I'm going. I am going onward in this profession. And like I said before, I am going to make the name Funk remembered forever. And you... John had better remember that and all of you idiots out here are simple-minded people I'd rather call you that are listening to this drive show right now remember that name Funk listen it was the name Funk before anything in this world even became funky that's right my father was a pistol and I'm a son of a gun, meaner than a rattlesnake, tougher than shoe leather, more dangerous than a hollow-eyed scorpion, middle-aged and crazy, that's right, crazy like a fox. That's why I've got this opportunity on the 23rd of July in the ring against Ric Flair, and you people are absolutely 
going to see a title change. That is a promise from me. The only way that I could be happier would be to have the match in Amarillo, Texas. Maybe I can figure out a way to get that match there instead of Baltimore and take it away from all you northern idiots. Well, Terry, I just have to, you just about said it all here. You, I did say it all, John. All right, so that's about it. I'll wrap it up, Terry. If uh, I want to talk some more, I can. Can I, John? Sure, this is your time, uh, your sir. Show. Two uh, hours. This is your show. Two hours. Uh, believe me, I could talk about Ric Flair and his faults for two hours. I just wanted to say he one looks thing, like though. Barbara Bush in drag to me, doesn't he? You? Well, he's, <laughs> you, have psyched, you have psyched him. Yes, who it do is. you think is going to win the match on the 23rd? Well, I know who you know. I know you're a great champion. You've been you've been a world champion. You I've come from there. you come from a I've classic wrestling and family. I realize right now I'm ranked number 10, and I realize in the count of three I can be number one. Did you ever think about that? I can go. Well, you've definitely proved your, your worth over the last four weeks. I'm a match. Mathematician can't go from 10 to 1 in three counts, but a professional wrestler can. That was just awesome. Um, my my experience with Terry Funk is all through you. I, I met him a couple of times um, when we were uh, doing the conventions. He came to, I think, did he come to all three? No, he went to uh, two. He went to the very first one in 1990, and he went. It was at the last one in 93. Okay, so I remember meeting him in, in 93. And I was I started doing work with the ECW because of your convention, because of the Sheik and, and Sherry. Mm -hmm. and that, that's We've talked about that before. But I remember going down, one of my first matches was going down to the ECW arena. It was uh, Terry Funk, um, Sabu, and Shane Douglas in a triple threat match. What I remember at that time of Terry Funk was the, the WWF Terry Funk from 85, 86. Uh, it was nothing you go, okay, you know. Here's a guy who should have retired a long time ago. What is he doing in ECW? It's not going to be that good. So when I saw him wrestle and he had reinvented himself and he he climbed the top rope and did a moonsault at his <laughs> age, it just blew my mind because probably 80% of the locker wasn't doing that kind of stuff. And he was no. doing it. That, that impressed me so much. And one of the greatest things I remember about Terry Funk was whenever uh, at the convention – uh, at an ECW show, you know, you finish your work, you're done, you go out, go hit, hit the bars or whatever, you wind up back in the lobby. This must have happened three or four times, easy. And who is holding court? Terry Funk. And I remember in ECW, coming back to the hotel, I don't know where we were, got back to the hotel, and we're walking through the lobby, and there's Terry Funk, and he's holding court with all these wrestling fans and wrestlers. And they're just looking at him Kind of like they're in preschool, John. They're just, their mouths are open, their eyes are wide open, and they're just listening to Terry Funk's stories. And you sit down, and you don't say anything, and you just let him go, and he's telling these great stories, and then somebody walks in. Maybe one of the wrestlers walks in, and he'll just start a promo on them right away. Look at you, you blah, blah, and he just goes off. And it's amazing just watching this. And, and after a while, you go, I got to go to bed. I got to get to bed. But you, you, I was there a couple times for just a couple hours just sitting back watching him talk and tell stories. And it's just an, an amazing gentleman and, and nice, always nice. Always had, you know, he, he had that rugged look like he was about to slap you. Um, but he'd always do you, you know, hey, can I get a picture with you? Like, absolutely. Come over here. And, oh, yeah, come over here. Yeah, Just a joy to be with at all times. He respected the fans. He respected the young up-and-comers. And he gave it all to us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Terry Funk, you will be missed. Um, well, 
you know, this is why we do the show. Let's let's go back to tonight's card. 50 years ago today, New York City, Madison Square Garden, Monday night, October 15th, 1973. Bell time, 830. 22,102 in attendance. That is up 3,500 from last month. John, um, I don't remember when, when I used to go to see shows at the Garden or Nassau Coliseum. Shows were mainly like on a Saturday night. Um, this is a Monday night show. Was that prevalent back in the day, a lot of Monday night shows? It was the vast majority of the shows at the Garden were Monday nights. I mean, they did an occasional Saturday night show, but for the most part, it was Mondays. Interesting. And now we've had a month layoff. There was no show in September. So we're talking about like 45 days plus. What were they doing on TV at this time, John, to keep the buildup going and to sell tickets? You know, they were coming off of that uh, uh, moronic match between Stasiak and Morales where it went to curfew. And it was by uh, judge's decision that they gave it to Morales. So uh, they just continued on that storyline where uh, Morales and Stasiak were now going to compete in another one of these name only. Texas death matches uh, and pushing that uh, for the garden on October the 15th. But there was nothing really out of the ordinary, but you know, you can sense that uh, some change might be in the air. You had Larry Henning uh, getting a push there. You had announcements like John Tolos was coming in. You had the speculation that uh, at least some of the fans behind the scenes that, you know, there's some talks with Bruno going on. Maybe Bruno's going to come back. You know, that was out. But TV was just kind of just building off of the, the, the last show. And the booking kind of just was kind of okay. It was not anything really special. And how about tickets to the show? Did you get the eighth row tickets? Is this the day that you get your eighth row tickets? This is actually the last time that I actually had to buy the tickets for your traditional methods like the Ticketron, which I had ringside. And I did some filming of, of this show. I think one match or two matches I might have filmed from it. Certainly the girls tag team match I captured on film. But beginning the next month, and I don't want to give everything away, but beginning in the next episode, that's when I discovered Mr. Bill Baker, who was a ticket seller at the Garden box office and met him through a friend. And then, you know, then you give him a little extra money the day of the show and you are in the first couple of rows. So we'll go over all of that in detail on the next episode. I'm excited about that. That's one of my favorite stories you tell. Well, let's go to the matches. Match number one is a tag team match. Vicki Williams and Joyce Grable defeated women's tag team champions Tony Rose and Donna Kristen Tello in 17 minutes, 7 seconds to win the titles. By the way, all four women were trained and booked through Fabulous Moolah. Yes, Moolah, of course, uh, ran uh, women's wrestling in the United States, and these were all uh, trained by her, as you mentioned. Uh, it did really pop the crowd because it was a title switch. Williams and Grable defeated the women's tag team champions, Tony Rose and Donna Crescentello, to win those titles. And it really popped the crowd because you don't normally see a, a women's title change hands and it hadn't been done before at the garden so this was kind of the first time that you actually saw women in a match that titles actually changed hands and let's go to match number two which should have been match number one El Olympico fought Mike Pappas to a draw at 13 minutes 33 seconds yeah, it was, uh, you know, just a blase match. Mike Pappas was always a good performer as Olympico. Uh, Pappas had some really good drop kicks, and uh, there was actually a documentary uh, made on him most recently that's out there. But um, he was known as the Flying Greek. His real name was Manoli 
Savanus, and he was a technical wrestler known for that drop kick and the flying head scissors. He made his debut in 1968. He retired in 1978. His first appearance at Madison Square Garden was May 24th, 1971, losing to beautiful Bobby. Mike had 104 WWF matches, so he was kind of a mainstay from 71 to 74, mostly on TV and a lot of the house shows, but uh, never really got a big push, but he was a, he was a decent hand, a decent worker, and he worked as a jeweler as well after his wrestling days. Uh, becoming a real successful entrepreneur and also uh, a, a big time philanthropist. And that documentary, which I referenced, came out in 2022. It's called The Flying Greek. Mike Pappas, check it out. Match number three, Manuel Soto defeated Tony Altamori in eight minutes, seven seconds. Altamori, uh, certainly uh, uh, somebody that was around for a long time. And Soto was one of those uh, B-level performers that's never really made the uh, the leap up to an A-level. But it started off Altamori throwing Soto into the corner. Soto jumps on second turnbuckle, hits flying crossbody to get the win. It was, you know, Manuel Soto was a good uh, a good wrestler. Uh, he was a Garden fan favorite. He had 47 appearances at the Garden start- starting in 1964. Altamore. He was a member of the front office as well, but he made his debut in 1960, and his uh, he was most well-known for a tag team that he had with Captain Lou Albano, and they did a gimmick that was kind of a stereotypical gangster gimmick, and they were called the Sicilians. Uh, they even won a Midwest Tag Team Championship on the undercard of that famous June 30th, 1961 show, Comiskey Park, that main evented Pat O'Connor against Buddy Rogers. So the, the pair got a into a lot of heat with the real Chicago Mafia at the time and left town before dropping the titles. Uh, In 79, McMahon assigned Altamori to be a chaperone of a new and kind of unruly guy that they were having some issues with in the very beginning uh, named Hulk Hogan. And in Hogan's autobiography, Hogan called Altamori's appointment as a chaperone as one of the best gifts that McMahon ever gave him. Altamori retired in the early 80s and worked as a low-level executive for the WWF. Very cool. I did not know that about him. Yeah, he was always good. I remember him on TV even in the 60s. I mean, he was uh, he was just a rough brawler and pretty believable. And then that pairing with Albano as the Sicilians was really cool because they really played off that Italian gimmick. Let's go to match number four. Jose Gonzalez defeated Pancho Valdez in 10 minutes, 27 seconds. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to talk about Jose Gonzalez, also known as the Invader Number 1, and uh, was also called the Prophet. Uh, he debuted in 1966. He retired in April of 2022 at the age of 76. This was Jose Gonzalez's first Madison Square Garden appearance. As everybody knows, Gonzalez was charged with the murder of wrestler Frank Goodish, Bruiser Brody. Uh, he was acquitted due to... A, self-defense uh, uh, plea and very contentious circumstances. That whole situation of the Brody murder kind of stemmed from the days when uh, Brody was in the WWF. They just didn't get along. Brody beat the crap out of him at a TV taping, bloodied him up, legit. And uh, it is rumored and alleged that after that, Jose said, I'm going to kill that guy someday. Ironically, I got some pictures of uh, that match that Brody had with Gonzalez at a TV taping. And at the end of it, Manuel Soto and a, and a couple other guys helped Gonzalez to the back. Uh, so I have like three or four pictures of that. And who knew what was going on? All I know is like Brody beat the crap out of him for whatever the reason was. There probably was a disagreement or there was a spot that didn't go right in the ring. 
but you know the the murder allegation took place over money and payoffs and Brody had a piece of the promotion back then so and when I look at all the pictures I have of Jose Gonzalez and he was pushed as a mid-level guy and he had tag teams with a number of different individuals there he teamed even with Putzky for a while and uh, but I can't look at a picture of Gonzalez right now without just kind of looking at it in disdain and disgust for what this guy got away with, with just killing one of the biggest stars in the history of pro wrestling, a great family man, somebody who Gonzalez took from not just the wrestling business, but a beautiful family. So not a fan. Um, he never got what was coming to him. Even some of the key witnesses, I mean, Tony Atlas was there. Tony Atlas saw what was going on. Dutch Mantel, Abdullah the Butcher. I mean, and, and you know, there's been documentation on it. Dark Side of the Ring did, you know, something on it. But uh, to this day, it's just kind of just a sad, sad episode in the history of the business. And, and to put a little light on this also, why do you think the jury was like this? Well, the jury thought wrestling was real. And they saw Bruiser Brody as, you know, a bad guy. So he probably got yeah. what he deserved. Where, you know, who 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 was in charge of it? It was Jose it was uh Carlos Colon. Carlos Colon was in charge down there, so he didn't want that getting out. It would ruin his business. So he picked his business over somebody's life. Yeah, and that's kind of what it boiled down to, isn't it? The whole episode, the whole story, everything about it just stinks. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I just I, I'm with you. I can't look at a picture of him, and I just feel like nothing's ever been resolved. Yeah, I can't even post a picture of him on socials, and I did that once or twice. I got like, how can you put a picture of this guy up you know, on your socials? And it was just like him participating in a match, or I think I even have a I had a picture of him and Tony Altamore from the Garden that I posted uh, on my socials, and people really were like, uh, how how dare you put a picture of this guy up? You know, and I haven't put up one since, and I and I won't. And I don't, I don't feel like anything's ever been resolved. I totally agree. Totally agree with you there. But, um, you know, Pancho Valdez, who uh, Gonzalez fought uh, that night in October of uh, 1973, uh, his real name was Isaac Rosario, who's a longtime journeyman with many ring names, a lot of uh, enhancement or preliminary matches under his belt. I remembered him because he had this big, scrawny beard, and he was really animated in the ring. He was really interesting to watch. He worked in the Gulf Coast from 71 to 73 as Gypsy Joe Rosario. He had this long, frizzy hair. He was covered with tattoos. And this was his first appearance at the Garden. Uh, he also uh, worked for a promoter, Tony Santos, for a while, a Boston promoter. And Tony Santos and Jack Pfeffer, who were partners uh, uh, with a company called Big Time Wrestling, they used to dupe the fans with their advertising. Like, for example, Pancho Valdez was known as Bruno Sam Nartino in that promotion. So each one of the performers and each one of the wrestlers had a name that was uh, mimicked from a superstar with a different spelling or different pronunciation. And uh, Valdez was known as Bruno Sam Nartino for the big time wrestling promotion run by Tony Santos and uh, the legendary Jack Pfeffer. It reminds me of back in the day when the independents used to have like the doinks come around. Yeah, right. You know, with doinks, it was easy because, you know, you had the clown makeup and it was identical. Uh, but, you know, can you imagine the fans who were buying tickets for this big time wrestling promotion and expecting to see like Bruno San Martino and, and Bobo Brazil. They called the uh, I think they had a character called Hobo Brazil instead of Bobo Brazil in that promotion. Uh, but imagine coming and buying a ticket, even if it was like three bucks or four bucks, you get in there and it's like, these are not these guys. Only in wrestling, man. Hobo Brazil. I love that one. <laughs> 
right. All right. Let's go. Let's go on to match number five. Ron Fuller defeated Frank Valois. And we know why Frank's in the building at nine minutes, two seconds. Yes, we do know why Frank is in the building, and he's always, of course, uh, associated with uh, Andre in the early days. So uh, it was a match that was uh, cool. I think I have some footage of this match, too, uh, Ron Fuller, and it was his only appearance at the Garden. So, yes, I absolutely do, because I do have film footage of this. Uh, Ron Fuller's real name, Ronald Welch, debuted in 1972, retired in 1988. Wrestling family, four brothers, uh, uh, the Welch brothers, uh, Roy, Jack, Herb, and Laster, who started in the business in the 1940s. Ron's father, Bobby Fuller, and grandfather, Roy Welch, were wrestlers. His cousin was Jimmy Golden, a.k.a. Bunkhouse Buck, and Rob's brother was Ronnie Fuller, also known as Colonel Robert Parker. Uh, Ron was trained by his father, Buddy Fuller. He co-owned Continental Championship Wrestling, which was a pretty mainstay promotion back then. This is Ron's first and only appearance at, at Madison Square Garden. January 25th, 2020, Ron returned to the ring at the age of 72 to team with his cousin, Jimmy Golden. Wow. Yeah, and you look at Valois, also known as the Red Mask. He is, uh, at this time, Andre the Giant's travel chaperone. He first appeared at the Garden in 1959. He started wrestling at the age of 18, retired at the age of 56, 38 years in the ring. And Frank got involved uh, with Andre uh, with pro wrestling uh, and was his business manager for the first five years of Andre's career. I like how you told me earlier on that um, Vince McMahon Sr. became Andre's manager. He became his primary booking agent. So uh, all the bookings for Andre the Giant had to go through Vince Sr. After Andre made that debut in 1973 at the Garden, uh, Vince handled all his bookings for several years. So that was, you know, <laughs> that was around the time where I guess Valois was getting pushed out. Yeah, and I, I think it was also good for Andre because, like, if somebody called to say, hey, I want Andre in this territory, Vince would be like, what do you want him to do? What you yeah. know, he's not gonna lose to this guy. No, he's not gonna be slammed. No, he, so he he brings some, you know, he 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 keeps the Giants. Uh, what am I? What am I thinking about? What word am I thinking about? Like, uh, the, you think he was just doing it because he cared about Andre? No, or, no, 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 or, no, no, or, no. Or was it because each time he did book Andre all over the world, he got a booking fee for it? No. He got a commission. I'll go one further. I think yes, he wanted the commission. He wanted the booking free, but he wanted to last as long as it could. He didn't send him into a territory that he's going to get pinned or he's going to get slammed unless Andre wanted to be slammed. So he kept his legacy. He, he built this legend on the Giant where if he just went to you know, territories. He also, he also knew that Andre the Giant was one of the most spectacular attractions in the history of the pro wrestling business. So, of course, he latched on to him and made Andre a ton of money. And in turn, he made a ton of money off of Andre. 100%. But he look what he did. I mean, he elevated the guy, and he really turned him into Andre the Giant. That's when the name first got used, when Vince Sr. gave it to him, and Andre's career skyrocketed after that. He was well on his way to becoming a big star, but uh, not the star that anyone could imagine until Vince McMahon took over the booking and changed his name to Andre the Giant, and he really became this attraction that could go into any territory and sell it out and be someone that the fans would remember when they left the building that night. Absolutely. I never saw him wrestle. I never saw Andre wrestle in person. Wow. Yeah, never. I, I went to a couple of things I thought he'd be at. Uh, I, I remember a garden. Uh, it was a Coliseum show. It was a battle royal, and I was all excited, and it wasn't him. It was Blackjack Mulligan was the big guy in that match. Oh, I'm sorry, Tim. I know. I feel bad. 
Little things like that. All right, let's move on to match number six. Tony Gurria defeated WWF Tag Team Champion Mr. Fuji in three minutes, 54 seconds. I like the time of this match. Yeah, very short and quick, short and sweet. Uh, Gurria defeating uh, Fuji. And, um, you know, Tony, uh, you know, what a great uh, performer. Uh, it was the fans loved him. The girls loved him because it was his, you know, his looks. His, he, he, people loved him. And he uh, wound up appearing at the Garden 99 times, close to 100 times he was in the ring there at the Garden. Match number seven, Victor Rivera defeated Mike McCord in one minute, 35 seconds. Yeah, another short and sweet one, uh, Rivera over McCord. Rivera, of course, um, being a very popular fan favorite. And McCord at the time was just big, huge bodybuilder type with this big barrel chest. And, you know, he eventually became uh, Austin Idol. Well, let's go to match number eight, the eighth wonder of the world. Andre the Giant defeated Black Jack Lanza at 10 minutes, 51 seconds. You know, when you take a look at it and the attendance for that night, I mean, the uh, 3,000 extra people that were there from the previous show, I would bet that the presence of Andre the Giant on that card made it a sellout because people loved it, as we were just talking about. Andre was this huge attraction, and anytime he appeared at the Garden, it was always a special night and just to be able to see this man who was just unbelievable. So, uh, you know, he, he works on Lance's legs. The referee stops the match, saying Lance is too injured to c continue, so it wasn't a clean pin, but it's hard to believe that Andre passed away 30 years ago in 1993 at the age of 46 years old. And if you're a fan of uh, of Andre, I, I do have to say that if you're a patron or if you go on the internet and look for the John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, uh, we did celebrate Andre's passing of 30 years ago back in February with you know people that knew Andre and ran his farm in North Carolina. So uh, that's one for you guys to look for because that's a very interesting show talking about some stories about Andre that people have never, ever heard before. Uh, his wrestling debut was on my birthday, Tim, January 25th. But not the year I was born. No, I was born no. in 57. This was in 1966. So that's when he made his wrestling debut. Uh, he also was, of course, a crossover uh, star. He appeared on the TV show Six Million Dollar Man for two episodes in 1977. Uh, and of course, it was... Uh, in today's money, it wouldn't be the $6 million man. It would be like the $25 million man. <laughs> uh, he did some movies as well. Uh, uh, people know about those. But his first film was in 1984's in Conan the Destroyer. In 1974, the Guinness Book of World Records had him listed as the highest paid wrestler in history. In 1989, he was arrested and charged with assault as he attacked a TV news cameraman, shooting his match with the Ultimate Warrior at the Cedar Rapids, Iowa arena. And that, of course, was uh, when Andre's at the very tail end and uh, was not in good health. And who knows what happened that night. But Andre was acquitted on that charge, fined 100 bucks for criminal mischief. And Paid the station $233 for damage to its equipment. I do have an Andre story. You'd like to hear my Andre story? I would. Okay. Uh, so I went to college in Boston, like yourself, and I worked as a DJ in clubs. Well, not clubs. They're bars. They're bars. And there's a bar called Champion Sports Bar. And all the wrestlers would actually come there after their matches. And I, I didn't always get a chance to go to shows. You know, you only have so much money. So uh, we're at Champion Sports Bar. I forgot that wrestlers were in town. And who's at the end of the bar? It is packed. But you see Andre the Giant at the end of the bar. And I am, like, super excited because I love Andre. <laughs> I just want to shake his hand. And I, I, I put on a song, and I make my way over there, 
And who's standing there but the million-dollar man signing dollar bills? And I went to say hi to Andre, and he has backed me, and I kind of like tapped him on the shoulder. And a guy came around, and he said, sir, I'm sorry, nobody right now, nobody right now. I go, I, I work here. He goes, no, no, nobody, nobody, nobody. And the guy's name was Tim White. So he shooed me away. Ah. Shooed me away. Uh, later on, Andre went upstairs. Uh, we're closing the bar. There's Tim White. I go, hey, man, I just wanted to say hi. I'm, I'm just a huge fan. Can you tell him that for me? He goes, yeah, I'll tell him. But I just – like that moment, like that's why I think I've always been that kind of guy. Like, take advantage of the moment because it may never happen again, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was, yeah. I was respectful. I didn't want to interrupt him. He wasn't like drinking or talk. He wasn't talking to anybody. He was just, you know, leaning over on the side at the bar uh, with Tim White. So I never got to, you know, I wanted to shake his hand so bad. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a, you know, nice to hang out after the matches at the Garden at the Savoy Bar, which was across the street from the. Uh... Edison Hotel where the guy stayed and and Andre was always there when he was in town and and that one night that I had that magical moment <laughs> that I'll never forget when George Napolitano uh, suggested that uh, that we uh, leave that packed little bar and go across the street and uh, Andre Fuji Tanaka Napolitano and myself went across the street and hung out in a quiet little bar and they sent someone out for some uh, cold cuts. Uh, which they ate out of the package and drank a shitload of beers. And it was a night I'll never forget. It really was. And then uh, Andre leaving the bar that night, and he had a few. And a fan, in a different situation that you were exposed to, a fan was trying to get his autograph or something or said something, and Andre started chasing him around this car uh, right outside the bar. So that was kind of something that will live in my memory forever. Yeah, I don't think at the time when I saw Andre he could run. Definitely not runner at that time. no. That they're just you know little little times you don't expect these things. I wasn't expecting to see him. You weren't expecting to go across a go across the street right. to a bar and hang with him. And John and I find ourselves in these situations, and we're not like, tell me a story. Tell me. We just find ourselves being flies on the wall a lot of times because if an opportunity comes up, we can have a conversation. I'd love that, but I'd rather just sit back and listen. Like we were talking about with Terry Funk, I wasn't asking questions when he was doing his you know thing in the lobby. I just sat there very quietly and just watched the way he held court. And and same thing with Andre. If Andre wanted to talk to you, he would talk to you. You know, uh, at that bar that night, at Champion Sports Bar in Boston, I don't know if it's still there. I wonder if it is. Champion Sports Bar in Boston, the million-dollar man was leading court. He was saying hi to everybody. He was getting pictures with all the ladies. He was signing dollar bills with everybody. So the, the, the contrast of people depending on how they want to be that night. Do they want to be a celebrity that night or do they want to be just left alone? And that was, uh, as we said, towards the tail end of his career. And, uh, you know, obviously he uh, was deteriorating and all of that. So Tim White was just doing nothing but kind of protecting him. Doing his job. I can't fault him for it. Doing his job. Well, let's go to match number nine. Dean Ho defeated WWF Tag Team Champion Professor Toru Tanaka in 11 minutes, 30 seconds. Ho wins with a flying double chop and a splash to win the match. Yes, he did. I used to love Dean Ho. I mean, he was such a great performer. I loved his matches at the Garden. I loved when he won the tag team title with Tony Gurria. He was really authentic, and he um, had a he had a you know really good martial arts uh, gimmick as well. Uh, so he was one of my favorites back in the day. Uh, he debuted in 1962, retired in 1983, and he was trained by Dick Byer, who was the Destroyer. And this was his first Garden appearance, so it was really exciting for me to get a chance to see him. Him in person. 1957, he opened up a gym in Hawaii, and it was a popular training 
Center with uh, bodybuilders and pro wrestlers. In 1968, he had probably one of his biggest feuds uh, with the NWA champion at the time, Gene Kaniski. Uh, Ho also held NWA tag team titles with Fritz von Erich. Uh, so as you can see, he had a pretty solid career. In 1990, he sold the gym, retired to Canada, and he worked as a social worker in Vancouver, British Columbia. And as I mentioned, uh, he did win that WWF tag team title with Tony Gurria. They were a very popular tag team, and they didn't hold the title for a long period of time. I think they could have really made a better run of that uh, tag team situation. Tanaka, on the other hand, you know, he was a mainstay at the Garden as well, as well as the old Madison Square Garden. He was a pretty steady uh, performer and uh, always the consummate heel. Uh, But this was his second loss in a row at the Garden, so it didn't bode well for future pushes, but uh, he eventually got the tag team titles again anyway. I'm just surprised with Dean Ho. I, I First of all, I've never heard of him before. I've never seen any of his matches. I wonder where he was wrestling in the 70s. Yeah, all over. I mean, he was doing a lot of Midwest stuff. He was a guy that'd go into a territory, spend his time there, and then leave. And But he was, uh, he was kind of a special performer. He was really, really good. Very believable and very liked by the fans. And you knew him through the magazines? Yeah, I knew of him through the, mag- the newsstand magazines. Yes. And then when he came in, obviously, I thought he was good right away. And when he won that tag team title with Korea, I was really happy. I thought it was a really cool uh, pairing. He did something very strange to me. Not a lot of people you hear leave Hawaii and go to Vancouver. I know. It's a little different. Vancouver is a beautiful city. A whole different landscape and climate. And, uh, yeah, you go from the beautiful tropical paradise and you go into an area where it's uh, cold. and Kind of like a Seattle. Like a Seattle, yeah. Exactly. just filled with rain all the time. Ugh, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Hey, let's go to match number 10. Chief J. Strongbow fought Don Leo Jonathan to a 20-minute draw. John, explain this to me because uh, I don't think you, you, you have a J. lose, J. Strongbow lose, but Don Leo Jonathan should have got more than that. What do you think? But Strongbow was in a, a unique case, you know, because Strongbow didn't do jobs at the Garden. He, I don't think he ever got pinned at the Garden. You know, he'd lose on a count out or he'd lose due to blood or, you know, a DQ or whatever it was. But um, Jonathan deserved better than a 20-minute time limit draw with Strongbow. But you got to look at the reality of who uh, was over with the fans. And Strongbow was always over with the fans. I mean, right under Morales, right under Bruno, he was a guy that people adored. So having a draw with Jonathan made sense only because of how popular Strongbow was. Let's move to the last match, match number 11. WWF World Champion Pedro Morales pinned Stan Stasiak, brought to the ring by the Grand Wizard in a Texas death match in seven minutes, 36 seconds. It was not a long match. Uh, of course, uh, coming back from that last match that they had, and these two fought around the horn all the time, uh, but this Texas death match was literally what it uh, just a regular match. I do have footage of this match, and it's up on YouTube if you want to check it out. Just look for Pedro Morales against Stan Stasiak. There's about a minute and 50 seconds, and I was, you know, I was at ringside, so I got the finish, got the roll up. Um, it was really a lame ending to the world title Texas death match. But uh, if you want to see some of that footage, just go to youtube.com forward slash pro wrestling spotlight. So find it there. Uh, Stasiak's real name, George Stipich, debuted in 1958, retired in 1984, and was a solid performer for all of those years. You know what I like about this match? 
seven minutes. After the last fiasco they had, yeah. it was nice to say, okay, in seven minutes, let's do some blood, let's do some pinning, let's get this thing over with. Right, and that's what happened, and it was uh, off to the races uh, for the next show. <laughs> well, John, how would you rate this card? You know, Andre made it special with his appearance. You know, the women's tag team title match uh, with the title change was great. So it was it was a typical garden show. It was exciting at points, boring at other points, but it was a huge crowd. And uh, once they announced the next show, I mean, you look forward to uh, oh, what's going to happen next at the garden. It was, you know, it was always uh, can't miss wrestling, especially for me who went so many years without missing a show. I think I would have dropped dead if I would have missed a garden show back then. It was <laughs> like my obsession and i was still in high school you know so i'm i wasn't even working a part-time job or anything so i relied on my dad to kind of give me the money to go to these garden shows and um, it was usually just like 20 bucks is all i needed you know back then and that was for the train ride the ticket and a program or whatever i would actually my dad used to work a few jobs a lot of them in my book of course but i would actually lose sleep on a sunday night heading into Monday if my dad wasn't home because his hours were staggered and sometimes he didn't get home till the morning or in the middle of the night. It was always like the day before a garden show. I was like, oh my God, is he going to come home tonight? And if he doesn't, how am I going to go to the show? But it always happened where he did <laughs> show up. And then, of course, later on when I got jobs and part-time jobs, I was able to do that myself. But at this point, as a kid, I'm like, please, daddy, come home. You know. <laughs> so if, if your dad comes home like 3 o'clock in the morning, he's not going to be up when you have to go to school the next day. What do you do? Oh, he'd leave me, leave me the money on he'd my leave desk the money. or on, okay. the, on the kitchen table, you know. But uh, once I heard that car pull up, and I stayed up, I, I would actually not go to sleep. I, I would stay up because I had this anxiety. Uh, so when I heard, because my dad usually would, um, he would kind of rev the motor a little bit right before he shut it off. So when I heard, and he had this Oldsmobile 98 uh, at the time, a big old tank of a car. And when I heard that car, you know, rev up and then shut off, I was like, ah, oh, he's home. You know, good memories, good memories. And he used to go, all right, I left you the, I left the money for your, I wouldn't wake him up in the morning when I see me. All right, I left your money for your wrestling. You got to go see that wrestling. That's the great. I love those stories. I love those stories. Definitely one of the best cards in the last four months. But there was no HBO. Maybe that was a good thing. Next month in November, they're going to be bringing back HBO. Uh, I, I don't think the HBO is working because I think there's a time limit on that. So they got to stretch matches when they have to. And, and sometimes they stretch the matches and it just becomes a bad show. Yeah. So that HBO uh, contract was really interesting at the time. But it gave them some national exposure on TV. Kind of the first national exposure that the McMahons had before Vince Jr. eventually took over the world. And, and this is a way to see, look, hey, I see something here. There's something in this. There's something in this. This is back in 1973. Vince saw this. There's something here. There's something here. I think we can do something with it. And look what they yeah. became. But it, the territories were like, that was that was the way wrestling was built. And McMahon Jr., even though his dad would not allow him to do it until Vince Sr. really passed away and Vince Jr. took over and, and actually bought the company from his dad for a million dollars, which, man, you know, we'll look at it. It's worth now, nine, you know, nine billion or whatever, whatever he got yeah, but, for it. It's but at crazy. the time, he he's an announcer. He he's pretty much an. Where does he get nine mil? Where does he get a million bucks even back then? Yeah, good question. Good question. That's a lot yeah. of money for an announcer, you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, uh, he had aspirations, and he always had that. He always wanted to expand. He always wanted control. Was what I remember, especially when he got a little bit more power. 
and he'd always threaten, you know, to remove the photographers. And, uh, you know, he wanted to run everything himself. He wanted his own magazine. And, you know, this was early on. This is, you know, this is 1976, 77. He was already planting those seeds. I mean, George Napolitano has a great story because there was that WWWF action magazine right around the time where I stepped into the ring. And it was McMahon's idea of having his own magazine, which eventually, and the, the partnership with George didn't work out. I mean, it was just... Uh, there were money issues. George had to sue him. You know, it was uh, crazy stuff. But he had his eyes set on early on in the mid-70s. He was already thinking about how this brand can grow, especially with the introduction of uh, cable television. Amazing. And, and you, who would have known 1973 this all started? Next Garden Show is November 12th, 1973. Headlining is Larry the Axe Henning. He'll get a shot at Pedro. And uh, this will be Pedro's last appearance at the Garden with the WWWF World Heavyweight title. Yes, it would be. And uh, for me, I felt like I was in hog heaven because this was the first time on November 12th, 1973 that I can actually say I sat at I think it was second row ringside, and uh, my life changed. All right, we'll have to talk about that next month. I want to find out, like, how much film did you bring you didn't know? I, I want to hear all these stories. That That'll be next month. Once again, we want to do a shout-out to Scott Teal and Crowbar Press, Wrestling at the Garden. We couldn't do the show without it. No, we certainly couldn't. Uh, this is uh, kind of our Bible in a lot of ways. Uh, so once again, that shout out to Scott Teal, crowbarpress.com. Go there and pick up a, co a copy of Wrestling at the Garden. It's the Bible. It's what we rely on each and every week. And uh, our, our good friend, Richie Garcia, uh, not only researches uh, the, these shows through that book, but he goes online. He just He's amazing. Richie is amazing at this research and putting putting together the formats for, for these shows. Couldn't do it without him. Uh, anything else, John? No, I want to thank you, Tim, of course. Uh, I know you're getting quite busy these days, so we're going to knock out a bunch of these shows so we can get through the end of the year because you have, uh, you have a lot of children to make happy over the last quarter of this year, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I am uh, what they call in the biz, I'm a real beard Santa. And I'm just starting now, actually booking a lot of dates for December, November, December. I'm doing photography right now. So if you're in the L.A. area uh, or the Southern California area and you're looking for a Santa, uh, you can find me at Jolly Santa Tim on, uh, on social media. So I'll be on Facebook yes. and on Instagram. Yes, very authentic. So anybody in that Los Angeles area or if you get a wild hair, if you really want to make your kids Christmas special this year, no matter what part of the country you're in, because I'm sure you'll fly into various locales if they pay your freight sure. and pay your travel, do it. Because, Tim, to be honest with you, and I've known you for so many years, and I never thought when I met you that you would evolve into Santa Claus. But your Santa Claus look, and I see that you've already got your prep done for this year. You have that wonderful beard and the mustache. And if you go to, what is it, Jolly Tim? What is it called again? Uh, it's called Jolly Santa Tim on Instagram. And also, I do do Zoom because John taught me how to do Zooms. So I do do Zoom Santa visits if you're looking for one of those, too. Yeah, but I mean, I would I would go to the site, just take a look at them. And, and you know, how many kids each and every year do you make happy and, and you get more work each and every Christmas as you evolve this thing. I, yeah. I, I never thought about that. I, I think, you know, when I started this, I was doing zooms and I think the first year I did uh, like 50 zooms and that was all over the world because it was during the pandemic. So it was like a lot of military families couldn't come home and things like that. Um, the next year I started doing coming out and doing appearances out here in Los Angeles. 
And then I started booking like breakfast with Santas or you're going to go to I don't do malls. It's more like uh, festivals and things like that. And the lines just, you know, doesn't stop. It just keeps on coming. And you put on your Santa face and you, you get the stories and everything. It's it's great. You know, it's it's a it's a second career for me, for sure. This is something I can uh, grow into right now. I dye the beard in a few more years. I'll, I'll stop dying it because I won't need to. Yeah, I mean, you do a lot of different things. Of course, you're a TV executive. You worked on a number of different uh, reality shows. Uh, you with, uh, what was it, Home Improvement? What was the name of that uh, that show that you first started? In? Extreme Makeover Home Edition. I was on that for three Extreme, years. Yeah. yeah, so you've done a lot of stuff. And, of course, you do that uh, Great Olympic podcast as well. Thank you. Uh, we are so, we are changing uh, the name. We are rebranding that that okay. uh, I will leave, give you the little hint. By the time this airs, it'll be out. It is gonna be. It used to be called Tim Loves the Olympics, but then you find out the Olympics doesn't like people using their name, so it'll be called now. <laughs> it, it's gonna be called Every Four Years, and then the subtitle is Every Four Years the Olympic and Paralympic Podcast. There you go. Well, you know, we wish you continued success uh, as you evolve into your Santa persona for the quarter. Oh, thank you. We always appreciate you and this uh, co-hosting of this uh, wonderful look back at wrestling history and uh, your continued adventures out there in the television world and everything else that you do. So um, kudos to you, my friend. Thank you. Let's hope that the strike is over soon so we can all get back to yes. work. So that's a good thing. For John Rizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time.